to the Sports Pro podcast. My name is Michael Long and I am the editorial director here at Sports Pro. Now this week we've got a special episode to coincide with our Women's Sport Week taking place all this week across Sports Pro's platforms and it's a conversation I recorded just a few weeks ago to mark the 50th anniversary of an organisation many would agree is the leading property in women's sport and a bit of an industry trailblazer. It's an organisation that continues to set the commercial benchmark for women's sport at the professional level and that is of course the Women's Tennis Association. Now to look back on the past five decades of women's tennis history, I'm delighted to be joined by Mickey Lawler, the WTA's current president. For those who don't know, Mickey's a hugely respected and influential figure who has worked in tennis for the best part of four decades, dating back to the mid-1980s. She's a former agent at Octagon, starting out on the men's side before switching to the women's game and becoming a WTA board member before taking on her current role as WTA president in early 2015. Now, Mickey herself has personally played a pivotal role in many of the most significant commercial deals signed by the WTA over the years, and is really better placed than anyone on the planet to talk about the tour's unique history. So in this conversation, Mickey and I start at the very beginning of the WTA's history and look back at the foundation of the tour in 1973. We also discuss some of the major commercial partners who have been involved in the tour's growth over the years, starting with Virginia Slims in the 1970s. We then go on to talk about the WTA's positioning as the leading sport for women and a purpose-driven organisation that has spearheaded the push for gender parity. Following that, we discuss the evolution of the WTA's on-court product and playing talent throughout the decades and its expansion into new markets, not least Asia, where the tour continues to boast a formidable footprint. And finally, we look ahead to the tour's future off the back of CVC Capital Partners' recent investment of $150 million into the tour's commercial business, a deal that saw subsequently the creation of WTA Ventures. But before we get into it, allow me a quick shameless plug for a five-part series I put together to mark five decades of the WTA just last month. It's a series featuring contributions from some of the most senior executives, including Mickey, who have helped shape the growth of women's tennis over the years. You can find all five parts over at sportspromedia.com right now. And as always, it's free for everyone to access. So without further ado, here's Mickey. To kick things off, I didn't want to go too deep into the origin story of the WTA itself, because I think that's well documented with the original nine back in 1973 on the eve of Wimbledon, Jean King, etc. But um, I think obviously the the purpose and the kind of founding mission is really interesting. I think it lives on today and obviously it's hugely relevant today for women's sport generally and women's sports property the WTA and obviously gender parity equal opportunity being the kind of real hallmarks of the WTA since its formation so I just wanted to get your take you know looking back with that in mind what impact has the WTA's creation had what impact did it have back then in the early 70s and what impact has its creation and subsequent growth had on women's tennis and, and sport generally over the years Well, I think the foundation of the WTA and its mission continues to be our North Star. So it continues to be really our guiding light and everything that we do, we have this framework in mind that we work towards. Will the job ever be finished? Probably not, but it is very relevant. And as I look back on my own career, I think all of us can be very proud of how far We have come from the days of Virginia Slims. And thank you to Virginia Slims because 
they did power us in the early days. And in those days, they were a tremendous brand with a tremendous focus of, you know, you have come a long way, baby. And that may sound absurd to us today, but at the time it was really relevant and perfectly aligned with the birth of the WTA. So it is kind of ironic that we have come full circle with the leader in women's health and whole logic. But it's really sort of incredible to look at the growth of the sport and the tour. I think that's been, again, one of the hallmarks of the tour, that constant pursuit of growth and that constant evolution. From so many perspectives, there has been expansion by almost every measure, entering new markets, more prize money, bigger tournaments, bigger profiles of the players, increased revenue, etc. You mentioned Virginia Slims and Hologic, but there have been so many commercial partners involved in the tour over the years you know to what extent has that growth been down to them what to what extent has it been to the way the wta has gone about the growth of its business strategically and really positioned itself as i guess a appealing partner for corporate entities it's been a journey and it continues to be a journey that kind of goes hand in hand so without virginia slims there wouldn't have been the start of the wta And then the growth was, as you point out, very much where are the opportunities? You know, where are markets opening up where we can go? So as we went to those markets, the tour expanded globally. It became a more attractive proposition commercially. And so this growth kind of went hand in hand. If you take the first sponsorship and compare it to now, you know, Hologic, Morgan Stanley, SAP. They are partners because, first of all, they love the gender equality piece of it and what we stand for, and that's a very relevant and important point socially today. And they love our global footprint, so they can activate in many of their priority markets. So it's a pretty nimble and effective partnership for these big blue chip brands. You know, no one kind of had a premeditated roadmap of we've got to be here or there. We were just all about where are the opportunities and let's go. Just in terms of that purpose piece, the gender parity, equal opportunity piece, which is hugely relevant today, as we've been saying, you know, purpose being such an important part of, I guess, any commercial relationship now that it's not transactional, you know, these partnerships that have to mean something bigger. Is it fair to say that the WTA is the kind of original purpose-driven sports organization? You're seeing so many sports organizations now talk up their purpose and their values and their mission. Yes, I do think so, because uh, the WTA was founded by Billie Jean King and and her co-founders in a way that required those athletes, those players, to put everything on the line in order to pursue moral justice, you know, they said, you know what, we are willing to risk it all in order to go away and grow our tour because our tour has merit, because we see it, we believe it, and we're going to make that happen. And that's exactly what happened. They proved to the founding pillars of the sport, the Grand Slams, that tennis is the only sport that is together, men and women together, and it's better together. So if the women would have left the Grand Slams, it would have had terrible consequences. 
So what they did was to actually prove the value of the women on those stages. So that purpose, it took risk. And I think that's kind of the definition. Did your roots include big risk? Were you willing to put it all on the line? And the answer is yes. And would you say then that, you know, here we are five decades on, those values, that founding mission and purpose, you know, absolutely lives on in the fundamental ethos of the WTA. But, you know, the societal conversation around women and women in sport and gender parity has moved on hugely since then. But there still seems to be this very clear challenges along the way. You know, we hear about it all the time around the conversation around women's sport and the opportunities that exist and the fair treatment in working conditions, et cetera, et cetera. You know, five decades on, the, how much progress has been made? I think a lot of progress has been made. So in a way, you know, you look back and you think, wow, we really got this done. In another way, there is still a lot to do. It takes a long time to build a business. You know, that's a given. And that's how I see it. But when the conversation started about we need to invest more in women's sports, I remember one pivotal moment sitting across the table from somebody who was considering investing and becoming a commercial partner of the WTA. And it was another woman who was sitting across from me and she said, we do need to invest in women's sports, but of all the women's sports, you're the most expensive. I can go to another women's sport and it'll be much cheaper and I'll have my mission accomplished. And I said to her, your mission is setting a very low bar then. If it's just about price, you have to look at what kind of impact can you have? What kind of return on investment can you have? If this is just about exposing your brand to a women's sport, then yeah, then the bar is very low. If this is about truly becoming an extension and working together to further that bigger mission, it's not expensive. And we've proven that over and over again. And I think, look, in any sport, male or female, any big commercial brand or any you know solid brand is going to look at investing in sports as an extension of their business. And it needs to have a lot more value than brand exposure. So there is still a lot to do. And, you know, from a product, I mean, I hate to say product because, you know, we're talking about women's tennis as people. And I often hear, well, you need the rivalries of the past. You need, you know, Chris Ebert and Martina Naratilova, Steffi Graf and Monica Selish, Jennifer Capriati. You need Gabby Sabatini. You need those consistent stars. And I understand that message, but I also know that in those days, the depth of field was not nearly what it is today. So today, anyone can beat anyone. And, you know, the sport has evolved from a performance perspective so much that you don't get one and one for the first three rounds of a tournament or one and three. The matches are so competitive. And that is something that I think is sometimes lost. The brand presence of consistent champions and 
Yes, of course. It is great to have those consistent champions that help you build the brand and build the sport. But it's also great to have incredible performance on the court that shows you that nothing is predictable or, you know, predetermined and that anybody can win. That's also part of the mission that started this tour in 73. Sure. Yeah, it turns out I think sports fans are hard to please, right? They want their enduring champions, but they also want depth of field and emerging stars as well. You can't always have it both ways. But I think, you know, there's so many of them. And some believe this, some believe that. And you have to respect that and it keeps it interesting. You know, it's a, it's a very lively discussion that we have to respect and really appreciate. Those are interesting points to me because I've been in this family, part of this family for 37 years. So I've seen the different stages, which has been a tremendous privilege and honor to watch but you know th there are some really interesting takeaways mm -hmm. yeah absolutely it's a discussion that's had obviously within tennis both the men's and the women's side of the game you have these generational talents who come through dominate for a period but and, and there's always some uncertainty about you know what the future holds once the big names retire new stars always come to the fore right and i think when you look back at the full lifespan of the wta you know that process of reinvention and emerging stars coming to the fore and really taking the, the mantle on from the previous generation, you know, I don't think the WTA has ever struggled with that in that regard. There's always been new names coming to the fore and done, done a fantastic job of promoting them and, and marketing them and, and getting them the visibility. It's really interesting when I started working in tennis, I started on the men's side and I worked in the media. Here, you know, you've got all the different NFL and NBA and all that. So in the States, it was, uh, oh, my God, tennis is dead after John McEnroe and Jimmy Connors retire. It's dead. And then it was, oh, my God, it's dead after Lendl and Becker retire. I remember sitting in the lobby of a hotel in Indian Wells very late at night after flying from Europe. And there was a European journalist sitting in the lobby and Pete Sampras was checking in. And I said to him, you know what? Look over there at who's checking in. Tennis is not dead after these guys retire. Here's the future. You're looking straight at him. Then Agassi walked in and I said, here's the other one. You know, the future is right here. So, yes, we don't have to stress about that. New champions always arrive and they always step up to the plate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess you don't know the future's happening until it's right before you and then suddenly it's the present. But just to focus in, we were talking before about the support from Virginia Slims and, and other sponsors. I guess a milestone in WTA's history was the support from Sony Ericsson. The title sponsorship was signed back in 2005, I guess more recently in its history. But deals like that are landmarks for women's sport, I guess, and for the WTA itself, obviously hugely important from a revenue perspective. But there have been ones, you know, deals since then that have been struck that, you know, and the WTA is always pushing the bar, it seems, with with those deals that have been struck, whether it's on the media side, the, the, that Perform Group deal signed, I think, back in late 2014, early 2015, and the creation of WTA Media. And then obviously the deals that were struck to, to take the tour out to, to Asia, the, the WTA finals out to Asia, to Singapore, and then on, on to China, obviously. You know, these are always raising the bar. And I think it feels like the WTA is and always kind of will be the kind of commercial benchmark that everyone in women's sport looks towards to say, you know, this perhaps is the model. This is the approach. This is how 
commercial arrangements can be structured to really grow a sport. It's interesting to note that it is always raising the bar for women's sport, WTA. Yeah, and it always represents an opportunity for a brand. So in the case of Sony Ericsson, and interesting how times have changed, when the Sony Ericsson deal was done, it was obviously a joint venture between two big brands, Sony and Ericsson, in a relatively new space, which was the mobile phone space. The market leader at the time was Nokia. So that business proposition of these two brands coming together, it was difficult. I think the WTA really supported that vision of this joint venture and our markets work to educate their local markets. And we did a lot of amazing stuff together, but business is not easy. And that was a very tough proposition in the end, you know, and then Apple came along and the business didn't make sense anymore. Then you also had the discussion point of a global marketing charge led by HQ, when that was not a very popular marketing strategy for any big brand. It was decentralized, localized, regionalized. And so having the WTA as a global brand didn't become really possible until 2013. I think SAP was the first commercial partner that really cracked the code in how to activate a global partnership and have support from the different regions and the different priority markets. Also, it was in a very exciting space in technology that was growing and growing. And it pushed us to look at coaching and look at player data, performance data. And now, you know, we're looking at the data sphere. These partnerships, they grow and grow and grow with the businesses when they work well. So that is what we've seen as of late, that things have changed from a branding perspective by these big brands and our stakeholders. It's the same with Hologic and and Morgan Stanley and a very interesting partnership is Whoop. You know, Whoop is collecting athlete data and athletes are demanding that information to really maximize their own performance and their own potential, you know, pushing the envelope and looking at, no, let's not look at what's impossible. Let's make it possible. Let's make it work really well for you for the sport. So I think what we have been is really open and creative, as well as we've approached these commercial partnerships with a responsibility to move the needle for for our partner brands. And I wonder to what extent, you know, how that's altered the mindset and the management of the WTA and the, I guess, the structure and the thinking that goes on strategically towards the growth and how you approach different markets, you know, as an international global brand. To your earlier point about, I guess, that growing maturity of the tour becoming more strategic over time, whereas perhaps it was previously a bit more on the fly or more opportunistic. What I wanted to circle back from on that point was the shift towards Asia, the eastward expansion, I guess, with the opening of the Asia Pacific headquarters back in 2008, but really from Linar's success in around 2011, you know, moving, heading out to Singapore and then into China. And how deliberate was that expansion and that real focus on the Asia Pacific market? Or was it more opportunistic, a kind of case really of following the interest, following where the commercial appetite was or where the money was ultimately? 
Well, to be honest, it's a combination of all factors. And when we make a decision around putting a tournament here or there, there's always a very deliberate analysis. Does this make sense? You know, our board looks at the presentation and the opportunity and supports it or not. But the WTA has always grown into new markets. You know, it's it's gone from Europe and the U.S. to Eastern Europe to the Middle East to South and Central America somewhat. You know, that market has not always been super stable and has been a bit more difficult. Japan has been there for a long time. The PPO tournament in Tokyo, supported by Torre for over 25 years, Seoul, Korea. So the China piece, it just, it's so salient because it's such a large market. I remember reading that Yao Ming, who played for the Houston Rockets, I remember reading this in the early 2010, 11, 12, around there, and that the Houston Rockets fan base grew by 900% overnight. And the magnitude of this market makes it look very salient in our trajectory. Of course, at the time when we began our expansion in China, it was during the leadership of Hu Jintao. And Hu Jintao had strategic relationships in many parts of the world. And so tennis was a perfect fit. Of course, Lina was a Grand Slam champion and she was a rock star. She was our Yao Ming. She's a strong personality. She's got amazing presence. She's got a great sense of humor. She was and is a dream ambassador of women's tennis. And so she's done a lot for the sport. You know, it's a central government, but there's quite a bit of competition between the states in China. So several states had Olympic development programs, big ones, incredible facilities. We had opportunities that were pretty important. And, you know, one of them was, of course, in Wuhan. And in Wuhan, the government invested in a magnificent facility and around Wuhan we had and have a tennis university, we have a metro stop that was called WTA. So it became a real community and fundamental to all of the students and the event represented an opportunity for internships and volunteer positions. And so tennis events transcend sport in many ways. And that was absolutely the case of what we saw in China. So was it opportunistic? I would say I would frame it more as an opportunity for the cities in China, for the provinces in China. It was an opportunity for women's tennis. And those shifts of influence enable us to go from strength to strength as a global sports league. So, yes, we did a record-breaking television deal with Aishi. We did a record-breaking finals deal. And we have had amazing events in China. What's the, what's the nature of the opportunity for the WTA in, in China as we look at it now? Obviously, China is opening back up as a market to international sport, slowly but surely. But how has that opportunity now changed for women's tennis in that market? I would love to answer that question once I've had the opportunity to go back and to 
live and breathe it and feel it for myself. You know, there is a lot of activity in China. There are also a lot of global stressors that every country has to deal with. I mean, look at us in the U.S. It's pretty disastrous, right? I think the world is going through a very difficult phase that was absolutely to be expected post-COVID. But um, there is uh, a lot that has to be fixed. And until it is, sport is a bit secondary. But we really hope to make it whole again and to work as a force for good and, you know, to continue to be a force for good. You know, we know that we can only control very little, actually probably nothing, but we do our best and it's all that we can do. And, you know, we're coming off of an incredible U.S. swing now in Europe and about to start the Grand Slam season with a lot of optimism and great things happening. We uh, are very excited about the partnership with CBC and the investment in the tour and in the sport. So, yeah, I, I think it'll give us the chance to start a new chapter on two very strong legs. Yeah. Just to kind of move on uh, slightly away from Asia, as you mentioned it there, the, the, the CBC partnership or the you know strategic investment there and the subsequent creation of WTA Ventures. I know you've got a new CEO joining, uh, I think, in the summer. What's the objective of that new business unit? Where is that investment from CBC going to be primarily targeted? And what does its creation generally kind of say about the future direction of the tour? Well, I think twofold. Whatever revenues have come in to the WTA through commercial sponsorships, through television, through all of our revenue sources have always been redistributed to the tournaments. And, you know, that's the tennis model, right? That's what enables both tours to grow prize money and to go from strength to strength. And I think that in a way we've grown exponentially over the last seven to 10 years. The expectation and what we should do as a tour is to invest in new ways of doing business, to invest in content, to invest in our digital platforms, to take advantage of the tools we now have to tell the wider stories and to grow the sport. And I think like any business, you invest to grow, you invest to then find new ways of receiving returns and reinvesting in the business. So that will, the CBC investment will help us to do that. And it will also help us supercharge or accelerate the road to equal prize money. That is a heated topic of conversation that there's still a big difference in prize money in many of our big tournaments. And so, you know, that difference in prize money comes from mainly media distributions. And to get to those higher media distributions, we need to invest in ourselves. And so I think CBC sees the opportunity to accelerate that road to equal prize money and to invest in the tour in order to to service all of our stakeholders. And presumably what you've just been saying there, you know, that logic and the opportunities before you on the, certainly on the media side, there have been big investments in the last eight or nine years in the media and that production of content volume, production quality around WTO's products and et cetera, et cetera. 
it's worth noting as well that the new CEO of WT Ventures coming in and has a broadcasting and streaming background, you know, presumably that's where the mindset is, right? Is that growth on the media side, I guess. It's definitely very important, yes. Looking ahead and that trajectory that the WTA is on, what do the coming years look like in your mind for for women's tennis and tennis generally? Every sport has to make big investments in technology, in television production, in data production, in serving fans, serving live audiences. And the more that we can consolidate those investments and bring our tours together the better we are going to serve our stakeholders. So, you know, we serve the same fan. That is our big value proposition is the fact that we're gender neutral. So we do need to act the part. We're doing a lot of work together. That's what you're going to see more of. 